Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. Today we're continuing in our series, Abraham, Father of All Who Believe, as we look in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 16, verses 5 to 15, with a message entitled, The Mystery of Redemption. Let's join Dr. Neufeld now. Are you ever overwhelmed when you think about the mercy of God? Perhaps you might think about an incident in your own life when you know God didn't treat you as your sins deserved. When we contemplate everything from our salvation to remembering incidents of God's mercy, we should become aware that God is always treating us better than our sins. There's never a time when we weren't experiencing grace. But not only us, but look around you. Jesus said that God causes the sun to shine, the rain to fall on both the just and the unjust. He provides food, and as Paul said, it's recorded in Acts 17, verse 25, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Indeed, what does anyone have that was not given to them by God? Our, our health, our intellect, our talents, our energy, every breath we take, every electrical charge that causes each heartbeat to take place, the neurons that are firing in our brains Those are from his hand. All is given by a gracious and loving hand, and it's given out of his overflowing kindness to all the children of Adam who have earned and deserved nothing from his hand. You know, to some, this undeserved kindness of God strikes us as, well, it's unjust and it's maddening and it's even upsetting. Oh, I know. We can understand God being kind to us, people like us, and even being kind to the objects of his grace and salvation, but that God would treat unbelievers with kindness. Well, some of us can't fathom that. Now, I say all of this because at a certain time in Abram's life, both he and Sarai wanted their problems to simply go away. And instead of that happening, God showed his mercy and love and grace to both Hagar and to her son Ishmael. And for those of us who understand where that's going, well, it might deeply perplex us. But let's start at the beginning. Sarah is barren, and so she and her husband Abram made an ill-fated decision to have children through Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. But problems seemed to start very quickly. As soon as Hagar was pregnant, this intense and emotion-laden and bitter spirit developed between the two women. So I'm reading Genesis 16, 5 and 6. And Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my mistress to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. And that would have been the end of the matter. At least it should have. Hagar, the pregnant maidservant of Sarai, flees, leaves the home of Abram and Sarai, never to come back, makes her way, is a single mom perhaps marrying someone else. The the child gets raised far from Abram, and perhaps even the child dies. But at any rate, nothing ever comes of this. I mean, that's how we think that the story should read. It would have been so neat and tidy if Hagar had gone all the way to Egypt, had a baby, met a nice young Egyptian man there, gotten happily married, raised a son on her own. They blend into Egyptian culture, and then all this messy sin would have been put neatly out of the way. And in the meantime, wouldn't it be nice if God now visits Abram and Sarah and they repent and God does a miracle and Sarah has a baby and the wonder of God's plan of redemption for the whole world just carries on without the Ishmael mess. I mean, that's how the story should read, but it doesn't. And even though we would have written the script in a different way, God didn't. 
God's desire was not to take the consequences of their sin away, but rather to allow His grace to flow into the very consequences that they had created. And that's how God's mercy is felt. So I'm now reading verses 7 to 10. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. Now let's make sure we understand how we got to this point. Four things happened as a result of Abram having a child with Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar. Now, first of all, Hagar, after she found that she was pregnant, began to despise Sarai. Remember that Abram had now lain in her arms, had shared intimacy with her, just as he had with Sarah. And unlike Sarah, Hagar gave Abram what he wanted most. So she despised Sarai. The word despised, found in Genesis 16, verse 3, is the very same word used in Genesis 12, 3, and it can be translated as curse. Hagar began to curse Sarah. Then came the second item. Sarai responded by blaming Abram for the mess. You know, it's entirely irrational to say what she says. She tells Abram he is responsible for the situation, and in a way, he is, but all of this was Sarah's idea, and Sarah is not done by blaming Abram. Sarai demands that God judge between her and Abram, and suddenly their relationship is strained in a way they never experienced before. She expects God to vindicate her and condemn her husband. And thirdly, Sarah becomes a victimizer. She has it in her power to begin to mistreat Hagar. She becomes cruel and overbearing and makes life miserable for Hagar. And finally, and fourthly, Hagar flees from this oppressive scene, a pregnant mom running back to Egypt where she came from. And those are the consequences of their sin. It began with attitudes of jealousy and hatred, increased with accusation and charges, and then finally led to mistreatment and a complete breach of relationships. And here's what I've learned. The kinds of sins described here never just go away, and that's because God is merciful in a way that surprises us. So let's start with verse 7, and remember it was said, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. We might be tempted to simply pass this verse by. Well, sure enough, encountering an angel is no minor thing, but we might be tempted to pass the angel by and concentrate only on what he says. But if you pay close attention to the text, you're going to find that if we skip ahead to verse 13, there's something remarkable there. Verse 13 says, she, that is Hagar, called on the name of the Lord who spoke to her. And that seems to indicate that this was not just an angel, but it was, it's been called the angel of the Lord. So what does that mean? Well, in Genesis 22, we're told that it was the angel of the Lord who forbade Abraham from sacrificing Isaac on the altar. And in Genesis 31, verses 10 to 13, the angel of the Lord appeared to Jacob, but in fact identified himself as the God of Bethel, the God whom Jacob had seen when he saw a ladder going up to heaven. And in Exodus chapter 3, verses 2 to 6, the angel of the Lord appears to Moses in the burning bush and identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in Judges 6, 11 to 24, the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon, and the Bible identifies him as none other than Yahweh. 
In Judges 13, the angel of the Lord appears to Samson's parents, and when they realize that it was the angel of the Lord, they're amazed that they're alive and not dead, for they have seen the Lord and lived. And in Zechariah 3, we see the same figure again being identified with the God of Israel. So what do we make of all of that? Why is this, on the one hand, called the angel of the Lord or the messenger of the Lord, and on the other hand, is called the Lord himself? Is this an actual angel, or is this a messenger of another sort? And of what sort? And how can this person identify himself with Yahweh, the God of Israel? For the first four centuries in the life of the early church, all theologians, without exception, were agreed that this person that appeared to Hagar was in fact a Christophany, or an appearance of the person of Jesus in the Old Testament. In other words... Just as Christ is distinct from the Father and yet one in being with the Father, so this messenger is distinct from God, that is, he speaks for God and yet is one in being with God. And so to repeat myself, for the first 400 years of the life of the Christian church, all Christians would have been taught that this was Jesus appearing in the Old Testament. And that was the only interpretation they had ever heard when they would have gone to church and would have learned their Bible. They would have learned this is one of the places where we encounter Christ. Now, in recent times, a great many theologians have challenged that idea. And they suggest that this being only spoke for the Lord, much in the same way as a messenger would speak for an ancient king. But if that were the case... We've got to ask ourselves, why are Samson's parents afraid to death when they see him? And why does Hagar call him the Lord? Now, I am sure that this appearance is an appearance of Christ. And if I'm right in that, that would mean that Christ himself thought that Hagar's plight was so significant that he intervened in her life and redirected the course of events so that she would go back to Abraham and so that the story that now follows would play itself out. God, in the form of his son, ensured that Ishmael would have a major part in the story. Have you ever wanted to spend time in fellowship with Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, or even the leadership team behind them? Well, this is your chance. We invite you to join us on a cruise from April 5th to the 14th of 2024. Kicking off in Miami, we'll sail through several stunning locations within the Caribbean. The beautiful scenery combined with the Bible teaching of Dr. John, spiritual encouragement of Laugh Phil Calloway, and feature musical guests is a recipe for the vacation of a lifetime. This is a time to be refreshed on so many levels. So for more information, to download the itinerary, visit backtothebible.ca, call us at 1-800-663-2425, and please note that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are spent. All related costs are covered by participants. The more we think about it, the more we become convinced of a powerful reality. What we have in Genesis 16 is what has been called a pre-incarnate, 
appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Now, that means that before the Son of God was born into the world, he appeared on several occasions and at very specific times, directing the salvation that he was going to accomplish. And so, for instance, in Genesis 18, we're told of three men that come to visit Abram, and by the middle of the chapter, we find out that one of them is identified as Yahweh. Now, clearly, this is an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Now, we could make the case that God the Son appeared to Abraham, to Jacob, to Moses, even right down to Isaiah in the temple in Isaiah chapter 6. At great moments in the history of our salvation, the Son of God appears and directs the course of events that would lead to his being born in human flesh and finally, of course, giving his life for our salvation. But why would the son appear to a slave girl by the name of Hagar who's running away from Abram and Sarah? I mean, why is that so important? You know, at this time in history, we can tell a couple of things about Hagar and her son Ishmael. We know that, and this is getting ahead of ourselves, that Hagar returned to Abram and Sarai, that she bore a son there, she named him Ishmael, and that she stayed in Abram's home until he was 13 or perhaps even 14 years of age. We also know that God made it very clear that Ishmael would not inherit the blessing of Abraham. We're going to see that most specifically when we study chapter 17. We also know that Ishmael grew to become the father of 12 sons who formed 12 tribes. We know that these 12 tribes were the Arab peoples who many today claim are the descendants of Ishmael. We also know that over 600 years after Christ, Muhammad would claim contrary to the teaching of the Bible, that Ishmael received the blessing and that it was the Arab people and not the Jewish people who were the inheritors of the blessing of Abraham. Muhammad was to claim that he was a direct descendant of Ishmael, and therefore he was a prophet that would confer the Abrahamic blessing upon the people who would legitimately receive it, for Ishmael was Abraham's oldest son. And it would seem at the beginning of the story The Son of God intervened to sustain Hagar and Ishmael. Now, if you and I were writing this story, as I've said before, we would have let Hagar escape to Egypt, marry a nice Egyptian man, raise the boy as an Egyptian, and simply be assimilated into the wider culture. But instead, it would seem that not only did God meet her, but that Jesus himself, the the same Jesus who encountered Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 7, would encounter Hagar. And that I find to be fascinating. Now, before we answer this perplexing question, let's continue to read. Verses 10 to 12 says, And the angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Now, as God encounters Hagar, he tells her two things. First of all, he tells her to go back to Sarai. Submit to her, he says. Transform your attitude toward her. Stop sneering at her. Stop needling her and and humble yourself and take the role that has been given to you. And secondly, he tells her that he has a plan for her son. No, he will not receive the blessing of Abraham, but this boy will be the father of a great nation. Now, let's notice the details. First, she's told that the baby will be a boy. Second, she's told what to name him. Now, the name Ishmael means God hears. That is, God is aware of Hagar's plight. He has intervened on her behalf and has answered her prayer. And third, however, the situation is going to be difficult. 
Notice the three noteworthy things that are said about Ishmael. First, he will be a wild donkey of a man. I mean, the image of the wild donkey is one that would not have been lost on the ancient reader. For instance, when God's speaking to Job in Job 39, he describes the wild donkey. It lives in arid places. It scorns the shouts of the driver. It refuses a master. I mean, the image here is one of a lifestyle which is outside of generally accepted norms. So first, Ishmael and his offspring will not live according to accepted norms. And then second, his hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He lives in a state of hostility towards others. And third, he will not get on well with his family. And here, it would seem that this indicates that Abraham's future descendants and Ishmael's descendants will live in hostility to the descendants of Isaac. Let me try to put a positive spin on this. Hagar would have heard that even though she has been called upon to submit to Sarai, but her son would not live in servitude to her as she had been forced to do. Things are going to change. Now let's put a negative spin on that. Ishmael will cause problems for the descendants of Abraham. But Hagar, for the first time, sees hope. Her situation will always be one of a second-class wife with little rights, but her long-term future is not constant servitude. And so Genesis 16, verse 13 to 14 reads, So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here, I have seen the one who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. The phrase, you're a God of seeing, can also be translated, you are the God who sees me, or you're the God who has taken notice of me. I thought I was abandoned and left to fade away, but your eyes saw me, and you've taken care of me. Now, Hagar had come to the border of Egypt, and in that desert place had discovered a well or a spring of water. And now, because she recognized that it was God who saw her, she names the well Bir Lahai Roy, which means the well of the living one who sees me. And it's here that we return to the theme of the kindness and the mercy of God. See, it's clear that neither Hagar nor her son are ever included in the covenant. In the course of time, they would form a very different people group, and yes, they would oppose the people of God. But knowing that only heightens the wonder of the mercy and the compassion of God. Psalm 145 verse 9 says, The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Sometimes we might find that that God answers the prayers of unbelievers when they pray to him. And why does he do that? Because he's good to all that he has made. You know, that doesn't mean that God is obligated to answer the prayers of unbelievers. I mean, in the case of those who confess Christ and have entered into a covenant with the Lord by the new covenant in the blood of Jesus, God in mercy has bound himself to our eternal cause. Now, no unbeliever has that. Indeed, God is in no covenant relationship with them, but that doesn't mean that he isn't good. See, I, for one, find it an honor to pray for unsaved people. I mean, I often do that in their presence. Of course, my hope is always that they might recognize the goodness of the Lord, surrender their lives into his hands, come to know Christ as Savior and Lord. I mean, that is my hope. But I'm always reminded that God may still bless them for a season, even if they never turn to him. God loves them, and so must we. And it is this very story of Hagar, son Ishmael, that reminds me to also pray for people in other religions. You know, I know someone's going to misunderstand me at this point in time. 
They're going to say that I claim that all religions lead to God. But here, let me be clear. There is no way to have your sins forgiven, to receive eternal life outside of through Christ and through Christ alone. Explicit faith in him is absolutely necessary. Now, that I've cleared that up. Now, let me say that I am never surprised when I hear of how God has blessed someone from another faith or that someone from another faith may have an insight. God is good to all, and there is no salvation outside of Christ. And it's for that reason that I think that we need to have this confident air about ourselves in our faith. We need to have an air that allows us to deeply love those who have yet not bowed their knee to Christ. We need to have an air that allows us even to listen to those of another faith and to hear their encounter with God and to also look for ways to bless them. And yet at the same time, we do them a grave injustice that in the process of coming to know them and love them, that we don't share the one eternal gospel with them that can save their souls. And so the lesson of Ishmael is that God is good to all. Does that bother you, my friend? If it does, then hear the heart of God. It delights God's heart to do good to all mankind. And that's what we do see in our day. May the Lord's name be praised. John, some might have considered this message to be a bit heavy, so I have a bit of a heavy question for you. Why would God cause Sarah to be barren? It it seems a a bit contrary to the character of God that we like to know. Yeah, I'm glad you asked the question, Ben. I mean, in one sense, it's not a difficult question to answer because we know that Sarah's barrenness served the purposes of God very well when it is that God brings a child basically through a miracle, that is through Sarah, it, it foreshadows the fact that, that, that Mary would give birth to Jesus also through a miracle. So when God brings his salvation into the world, it should be very clear to us that it's not impossible for salvation to come from God, but it's impossible for it to come from men. So I think all of that binds it so nicely together. Uh, God did this for his greater purposes. But of course, that always brings another question to to bear, and that is, how about other difficult things in life that we might not understand? And and we can't answer all of those questions, but I think Sarah's barrenness is a kind of a template for us that, that God can, in very difficult circumstances, actually bring about a much greater purpose. We won't be able to see it immediately, but given enough time, we should be able to see that God's ways are always right. Thanks so much, John. You know, that's a great response. And join us again tomorrow for more of Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. At Back to the Bible Canada, we're so humbled to see how God is using this ministry to speak the truths of His Word into lives across the nation and beyond. It's our mandate to faithfully present the scriptures exactly as they are to everyone without barrier. And it is so encouraging to see how many listeners stand with us in this commitment. Your gifts are the momentum that helps sustain this Bible teaching and engagement ministry and propels these messages to eyes and ears and hearts from all walks of life. We hear from listeners every week of the impact that Back to the Bible Canada is having on their spiritual journey. Sam wrote, 
I have learned so much over the past few years from the teachings of this ministry, which in turn has helped me lead my family spiritually. Thanks, Sam. Now, to support this Bible teaching ministry, or to learn about the free Bible resource this month being offered, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.